Uh, I planned to invite you to this lecture, but as you already heard, it will be on September the 8th. I will speak about Colossians, and the letter to the Colossians. So just say that you are very welcome. Uh, and also bring your questions and your reflections on the letter. You can read it in advance if you like, but you don't have to. But anyway, very welcome to that. Uh, I'm going to read the scriptures for today. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on uh, your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you. Like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heap up the dead, and crushing the rulers, rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a book, brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. I want to pray also for Ravi. Can I put my hand? Yes. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. Uh, I thank you for the word that you have put uh, on Robin's heart. I pray that you will bless him, fill him with your Holy Spirit. And uh, I pray also that we will receive uh, your word today that will come alive in our hearts and our minds. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So this is the final message in a short series I've been doing this month called uh, Songs for the King, which is I've taken four of the ten um, uh, royal psalms, and so I've, I've spoken about them over the last uh, you know the last few weeks. Uh, Mark will be preaching next week because I will be going in for cataract surgery this week, and I'll be recovering. So. Mark will be preaching next week. And then uh, after that, we'll head into a series on the one another's of the New Testament. Okay? Let's plan. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at uh, a number of the Royal Psalms. We looked at Psalm 2 and its promise there that God is, God is in control, uh, even when things seem to be falling apart all, all around you. We've looked at Psalm 20. And we talked about trusting God in the middle of our struggles and battles. Last week, we looked at Psalm 72 and what it teaches us about the qualifications for leadership, whether it's in the political realm, the church, business, whatever, and uh, the results that you can expect to see when you have uh, leaders of character who are righteous and just. This week has been a bit of a struggle for me. Sumbo basically hasn't seen me in the office this week because I've been at home working on this sermon all week. You may not think it when you actually hear it, but it's true. 
part of that struggle has been um, that this psalm is referred to so often in the New Testament. It's quoted or referenced about 20 times in the New Testament. It's quoted by the Lord Jesus himself. So we actually know a great deal about how the psalm was viewed by Jesus, by the Pharisees, by the apostles. Um, and the easiest thing for me to do would have been to, as I said, to, to Mark, to go the full mess messianic on it and just talk about how it applies to Jesus. And that's perfectly acceptable. One of my, one of my um, favorite uh, Old Testament commentators, um, Derek Kidner, does exactly that in his commentary. Um, but I've made a point in this series of trying to uh, do justice to each psalm in its original context. So I'm going to try and do that with this one as well, okay? And in the process of doing that, we'll actually see something. We'll actually see how God can use Scripture to interpret Scripture and so re reveal more of himself as we move through history and how we can understand more depth in earlier passages from our vantage point here on this side of um, res the resurrection. So what's called, it's part of what's called um, uh, um, progressive revelation. Alec Motier writes, progressive revelation is not a movement from error to truth, but from truth to truth, the lesser to the greater, the provisional to the permanent, the inadequate to the perfect. Indeed, cumulative revelation might be a preferable term. The old view of the Bible was essentially correct when it said that the Old Testament is Jesus foreseen, the Gospels are Jesus come, the Epistles are Jesus explained, and the Revelation is Jesus expected. One great, eternal, age-long, developing, and climactic purpose with him as its beginning, middle, and end. So with that in mind, I'm going to borrow an outline and some content from Michael Wilcox, who is the author of the Bible Speaks Today commentary on this psalm and look at who said what and when regarding it, okay? By the way, um, for a number of years, I used the Bible Speaks Today commentaries in my personal devotions. If you're looking for something with a little more depth for your personal devotions, Bible Speaks Today is a really good series. They're expository um, commentaries. So we'll first look at what the psalmist said. And after putting the psalm in its historical context, We'll look at what the teachers of the law and Jesus said about it. And then we'll look at what the apostles said about it. And I hope that as we work our way through, we'll find some real riches there. Because Wilcox says, To the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles. To the early church, it was full of treasures. So I'm hoping we'll find some treasures this morning. So, Psalm's made up of two separate oracles, the delivery of two words from God. In verse 1 and verse 4, and then after each oracle, there's an expansion of what the oracle means. So at the beginning, the psalmist says, The Lord said to my Lord, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In our English Bibles, the first Lord there is in block capitals, and the second Lord is in ordinary text. That means the first Lord is, the underlying Hebrew word for that is Yahweh which um, is the personal name, the covenant name of God. The second one is um, actually probably better translated as master. Um, 
So it's actually more like, the Lord says to my master. So it's, in its original context, the, the psalm is, is, uh, is a poem by a poet who's also a prophet. And it's addressed to the king. And in it, the Lord invites the king to sit at his right hand. That's a place of honor. While he, the Lord, makes the king's enemies a footstool for his feet. Now, that's an interesting image. Your enemies is a footstool for your feet. It comes from an ancient practice of having the victor in conflict put his foot on the neck of the conquered kings. So Joshua 10.24. When he had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. So that's where the, the you know, footstool for your feet idea comes from. So it's a picture of victory in battle. And that's what the psalm goes on to promise. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter is a symbol of ruling. So extending the king's scepter means extending the king's rule. Now remember what we said a couple of weeks ago about how it's always God who wins all the battles in the Old Testament. So here it is again, right? It's God who extends the king's rule. It's not the king who extends the king's rule. It's God who extends the king's rule. Now we, can, we can't always know when a psalm was written, but there are a few clues in this psalm about when it might have been written. The reference to Zion in verse 2 and to Melchizedek in verse 4 probably means that the original occasion of the psalm was David's conquest of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5. So David had been king at Hebron for seven years before he marched against Jerusalem and took it from the Jebusites. And this psalm was probably written to celebrate that event. Okay. Um, I'm not going to talk a great deal about Psalm 3, but verse 3 rather, um, because if you look at various translations, you'll see all the translations are different. Verse 3 of Psalm 110 might be one of the most difficult passages of all of the Psalms. Um, but the basic idea seems to be that the king's troops offer themselves like a free will offering at the time of battle. By the way, it's okay to say that some things in Scripture aren't totally clear. You know, the vast majority of Scripture is clear. But pretending there are no problems doesn't help our case, right? <laughs> it's the Word of God. We don't need to make excuses for it. We just need to humbly admit, I don't actually understand what this means right here. <laughs> so, um, and, so, and so you see that with translations, that translators do their best to do, you know, to translate what they think the text says. But in some places, it's like nobody's really quite sure. Verse 3 of Psalm 110 is one of those places. So moving on to verse 4 is the second oracle. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you know the Old Testament view of kings, um, this should, so, should throw up some red flags, this, this verse. Because like in, in Israel's neighbors, the kings were also often the high priests. They were priest kings. But it's clear that's not the case with Israel. 1 Samuel 13, Saul offers a sacrifice because he's impatient for Samuel to arrive to offer it, and he's rebuked for it. Second Chronicles 26, we read, 
after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, you have been who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. That took a lot of courage, on the part, just as an aside, that took a lot of courage on the part of the priests to stand up to the king like that, because he could have gone, I'm the king, I make the rules, and I'm going to have you executed. Um, as it turned out, the Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy, so he knew he was in the wrong. But how, how can you have it, you know, how can the Lord call the king a priest in Psalm 110? How does that work? When the constitution of Israel, if you want to call it that, given by the Lord, clearly kept those two roles separate. There was, there was a king and there was a priest and they had their own roles and they weren't supposed to, you know, be combined. If the psalm is connected with the conquer, conquest of uh, Jerusalem, that could give us some clues. See, the Jebusite inhabitants of Jerusalem have been enemies of Israel ever since they arrived in the Promised Land. But there was still a mystique about the place that went back almost a thousand years, all the way to the time of Abraham. In Genesis 14, Abraham, who's already a, a mighty chieftain at this point, he's just beaten a bunch of kings, great military victory, and he comes face to face with someone even greater than king of Jerusalem. So Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of the battle. And in return, he receives bread and wine and a blessing. Now, the city's name at the time was Salem, meaning peace. And the king's name was Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness. So he was both king of peace and king of righteousness. And the scripture tells us not only a king, but also a priest, priest of God most high. And that tradition persisted. The name was still there when Joshua took possession of Canaan almost 400 years later, Joshua chapter 10. Among his opponents was Adonizedek, Lord of Righteousness, the king of Jerusalem. So the question is, did David, when David became the first Israelite king in Jerusalem, did he in some way succeed to that tradition? Well, in this, in this psalm, the Lord, through his prophet, poet, says that he does. He does. In some way, he, he, he is a successor to that tradition. So in its original context, the psalm isn't just about any king. It's about David as he conquered Jerusalem and moved his throne there. And in the process, there's a prophetic word that says he not only takes over the kingship of Jerusalem, but in some way, he's also heir to the tradition of Melchizedek. So that's what the psalmist says. What happens when we go to the Gospels? Well, that's where things get interesting. Because by the time of the Gospels, that isn't what people believed about the psalm. Matthew twenty-two forty-two, Jesus asks the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? 
For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So the Pharisees and Jesus clearly saw the psalm as not being addressed to David, but actually by David and addressed to the coming Messiah, the Christ. See, Matthew had just been describing in Matthew 21.9 how Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, had been hailed as the son of David. And that was an appropriate greeting, but it was misunderstood by everybody, both Jesus' friends and his enemies. Because David was the founder and the greatest of a great line of uh, Israel's kings, and everybody expected that he would have a descendant who would be, what? Another one like him, right? A patriot, a general, a politician, a monarch in the old pat pattern, on a par with the Herods or even the Caesars of the world. That's pretty much what everyone expected. But Jesus takes this psalm and argues that, yes, the Messiah would be from David's line, but on a totally different level from him. And he makes that point by saying it was David who was looking forward to the future and speaking awestruck of a descendant of his who would be his sovereign and that he would look up to. So in its original context, the image of the king being invited to sit at the Lord's right hand was a metaphor. It was a place of honor. That was written about 500 years before Jesus. Sorry, about 1,000 years before Jesus. About 500 years later, halfway between David and Jesus, in the book of Daniel, there's this image in Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this isn't just a, king, a picture of another great king who is metaphorically at the Lord's right hand. This is someone much greater. And of course, Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was as the Son of Man, at least alluding back to this person here. Now remember last week I talked about um, the hyperbolic statements about the king in Psalm 72? Statements that were so over the top that they could never be about any human king. Well, the same was true in Psalm 2. We looked at that, you know, verse, Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will give the nations, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And we see, see the same thing happening here in the second half of Psalm 110. If you, look at, if you look at the margins, margins of your Bibles in verse 5, you'll see there's an alternative translation there that runs, my Lord, meaning the king, is at your right hand, meaning God's right hand, which a number of scholars think is a better translation for a couple of reasons. First, it parallels verse 1, where the king is at the Lord's right hand, and the king is still at the Lord's right hand, which is a position of honor rather than the Lord being at the king's right hand, which is a little strange. Um, secondly, it gets rid of the problem with the last verse. In the last verse, um, if you have it the other way around, you have uh, the, the last verse having God being refreshed by having a drink from a brook, which doesn't sound quite right either. So that would make the following verses about the king. He will crush kings 
On the day of his wrath, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Now, the first half of the psalm about the king ruling the midst of his enemies could reasonably be applied to David. But the second half about crushing nations and crushing the rulers of the whole earth, and we're back in the same kind of space as we saw in Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. We're talking about someone who is much more than human. And that's the point that Jesus is making when he quotes the psalm to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. So that's Jesus. Let's go on to the apostles. Now, the vast majority of those 20-odd New Testament references to Psalm 110 are to verse 1. And all of them understand the Lord who is at God's right hand with his enemies under his feet to be Christ. And there's also a handful of actual quotations in Acts and Hebrews. In Acts 2, Peter argues that, argues that David, seeing what was to come, quote, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews uses this verse again, excuse me, in Hebrews 1.13, to argue that the Son, Jesus, is greater than the angels. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a really important passage, a really important verse for understanding that Jesus is more than just a man. The early church looked back to this passage, Psalm 110, and found there an understanding of how God could become human, how the second person of the Trinity could become incarnate and still be God. They saw this, this, this tension there. Jesus is, in fact, the one who came from the presence of God, took on human form, returned to heaven to await the final consummation of history. What's new in Hebrews is that Hebrews also uses verse 4. In fact, Hebrews spends the best part, best part of four chapters doing an exposition of verse 4 of, of Psalm 110 and what it means for Jesus to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek only appears three times in the Bible. In the whole Bible, three times. All right, Genesis 14, where Abraham pays him a tenth of all the spoils of his victory. Psalm 110, where the psalmist looks back to that event and prophesies that the Davidic kings have some kind of claim on this heritage. And Hebrews, excuse <coughs> me, where the writer looks back to Psalm 110 and event identifies Jesus as the son of David who fulfills that prophecy. So Psalm 110 portrays Jesus as both king and priest. As Hebrews 8.1 says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the high, right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And as Hebrews makes clear, he's both king and priest 
as king. He rules over his people and will someday rule over all people in his kingdom of peace and justice. As priest, he stands between God and humanity. That's what priests do. Representing God to us and and interceding for us to the Father. And as priest, he has offered up his own blood as a sacrifice that cleanses us from sin. So we've looked at what the original psalmist said in Psalm 110. We looked at what the Pharisees and Jesus said about it. We've looked at what the apostles writing in the New Testament said about it. So now it's our turn. What will we say about it? What is our conviction about this passage, this prophecy and song? Well, we can agree with David's contemporaries and all those generations that came after him, except for one thing. The one it foretells was for them a hope, but has become for us a reality. From David's time onward, this psalm would foster in Israel a vivid expectation that perhaps the present king's son, or if not him, then maybe his son's son, would be the one, a member of David's house to whom God would say not only, you are my chosen king, but also you are my chosen priest, reviving that ancient Melchizedek tradition. And some held on to that hope, even when centuries later, the royal line had long since disappeared from sight. There was always within the nation a remnant of people waiting expectantly for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, the coming of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came, those people recognized him as the one who was to embody all of this, as the Christ. And so do we. We join them in that conviction. In Christian terms, Verses 1 and 4 are what the, God the Father says to God the Son. And then after the Son's enthronement as king, the psalmist speaks to him in verse 2 and 3 and says, Yours is majesty, the ever-fresh vitality, the devotion of your people. And after his appointment as priest, the psalmist speaks to the Father about him and says, he, His is the power, the ever-renewed vigor, the victory over his enemies. We don't see that fully realized yet. but. In the words of the creed, we confess. We believe that he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our king and our priest. You are the one who has made a way to the Father. You're the one who intercedes for us before the throne. And you are our Lord, our King, our Master, the one to whom we bow the knee. Lord, may our lives reflect that, we pray. So it's not just a confession of our lips, but the witness of our lives that we believe this is who you are and that you have changed our lives, that we are your people willing to serve in the way that the troops are willing to serve in Psalm 110, Lord. We are willing to serve, to lay down our lives 
for you and for your kingdom. It's an easy thing to say, Lord. Make it true. Make it true in our lives, we pray, by your grace. Pour your spirit into our lives, Lord, that we might truly reflect your character to those around us as we live to serve you. Lord, it's this week that is the one-year anniversary of the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. So, Lord, we want to pray for that land, which is still in the midst of turmoil. So many people who are on the verge of starving, um, still violence going on, still instability. And Lord, we pray, those of us who know people in Afghanistan, we pray for those we know. Lord, that you keep them safe. And that wherever they are, they might be a, a witness to you, those of us, those that are our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we pray for a future for that land, which has kind of dropped off the radar in the midst of the, the war to the north of us in Ukraine. And we pray for that too, Lord. Six months uh, and just now a grinding, grinding artillery battle. Lord, we pray for a breakthrough there of some sort that would enable people to move towards peace, a just peace. We thank you for the small steps, Lord, for the release of grain and at least the potential for um, ins inspection of the Zapranitsa nuclear power station. We pray for those who are working on that, Lord, um, that you give them favor with all that they need to do. And Lord, we pray for Pakistan. Terrible flooding. 33 million people affected and over a thousand dead. Lord, we pray that those who are seeking to respond to this would have the resources they need. And yeah, the after, after the flood, standing water, so much risk of disease. Um, and we pray that there would be a, 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 a good response to that, that need in that land. Closer to home, Lord, we realize that lots of people are traveling, many returning to Antalya in the next few weeks, so we, as well as those who are leaving. So we pray that you would um, protect them on the road as they travel, as they fly. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in all things. In your name, amen.